So we are traveling through the book of 2 Peter. And here's what I know about us as a civilization. We love growth. Just like every year we want to be better, right? Bigger. Your 401k, you want that thing to grow? Or do you want it to shrink? Because I can help you shrink it if you want to. It's easy. Right? Your business, you want your business to grow. Market share, you want your market to share, to grow. GDP, right? We hear that all the time. We want the GDP to grow. We want a V-shaped recovery. Why? So that we grow. Your house, right? You got house plans, right? Make the house bigger. Put an ADU on, whatever it is. We love growth. Here's some good news. We're in a section in 2 Peter that's about growth, right? He's tapping into this. So if you've been with us, Peter, first of all, says, listen, because of your faith in King Jesus as God and Savior, you have been given by grace nothing you deserved at all. You have been given righteousness and life, and you've been given godliness, and you've been given partaking in his divine nature, and you've been given all these promises, and you've been given freedom. Brilliant. We didn't do it. We didn't deserve it grace. But here's what you have to know. Human effort is inadequate, but it's indispensable. That if you read the New Testament, what you find is there are over a thousand imperatives. An imperative is a command. That there are, in the New Testament, a thousand things that this book says, hey, do this, New Testament believer. Now, all of them track back to God's grace, and we've talked about that, that it's the gasoline for the Christian life. But human effort isn't adequate, but it's indispensable. That grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. And you gotta keep that, it's a tension in your head, you gotta keep that tight. That God is looking for covenant partners, not robots, he's looking for covenant partners. That when you get saved, Jesus saves you by Grace alone. He pulls you out of the waters of sin and this world, and he sets you in the ship of salvation by his grace. And then he hands you a paddle and says, let's go forward. Join with me. Grow. Okay? So that's where we're at now in Second Peter. It's grow. So we've seen here, you've been given this by grace. Now, look at verse 5. First Peter, Second Peter Chapter one, for this very reason, what reason? All that God has given to you by his grace. Make every effort to supplement your faith. We looked at just that phrase last week. Supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So Peter gets real practical here. Hey, make every effort. Doesn't leave it ambiguous. He says, here's what you're supposed to be growing in as a believer. And he gives a list of seven things. And we're going to spend the next two weeks in this list. We're going to look at virtue, knowledge, self-control today. 
I want to do all seven, but I practice self-control. So we're doing three, all right? And these are the building blocks. They're like links in a chain. They're building blocks. So the first one, it's this word in the English, virtue. But the Greek word is arete. And here's what arete was. It was moral excellence seen in good works. It's your ethics working. Not what you're saying. It's actually what you're doing. And so the Greeks had this idea. It's where this word comes from. The Greeks had this idea that your life should be lived excellently. That we would say today, anything worth doing is worth doing. Right or right? It's just, let's do this. So you can start, but get better, right? Get better, do things better and better and better. That's arete. And I think this is where it all begins. If you don't have this one, look out. So maybe you're with us back in Proverbs. We did Proverbs back in January, just skipped through some Proverbs. And I said, here's what I've seen with this kind of 14 to 20 year old crew now. They had these high goals. If you ask them, so what do you wanna do? What do you wanna be? I wanna be an NFL receiver. I wanna be an Insta influencer. I wanna have a million subscribers on YouTube. I wanna be a skateboarder pro, right? They've got all these very high goals. But then when you ask them, well, what are you doing to get there? They have none of the daily or mid-level tasks that actually lead to the ability to get to NFL stardom or skateboarding or whatever it is, right? They think just there's this magic event that will happen to them one day and they'll be something. They're missing arete, right? And because of that, what happens in a young person's soul is this, because they failed this high goal, because they didn't have the steps to get there, they become cynics almost. And they're like, ah, life, Ugh. and depressed. And a lot of times they'll retreat into something that they believe they're killing it at. I may not be an NFL star, but you should see me at Madden 2020, man. <laughs> Great, you've become a idiot. Right? That's this thing. That's this great thing called arete. It's building. It's moving. It's being willing to begin at the bottom. Like, no problem. I'll begin at the bottom. I realize that I'm not good at this, but I'm going to keep working at it. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to stay at it. So my story. I came back from Vanuatu. I'd been there for a school year. Um, I was teaching for the first three months. I was teaching 10 classes a week. So it was just a brutal schedule. By the time I left Vanuatu, I had taught through one third of the Bible in one school year. So it was a, just a going for it. So I come back 2000 and I think I'm all that. And there was this Bible study at Pizza Hut, Friday at noon. And it was like 15 to 20 guys in the back room when it was a Pizza Hut. And it was given to me. And I'm just thinking, we will outgrow this room where I'm gonna kill it in here. So within about three months, I had built that Bible study from 15 to 20 guys to five. <laughs> right? And I was a little depressed with that. I'm like, oh man, really? But here's what I told myself. All I need is one. I have a goal in my mind. 
to one day pastor a church. So if there's one, that's all I need. And I would prepare for that thing like a thousand people were there, it didn't matter, right? And I stuck to that, five guys for four years. And it's where I learned to do topical teaching. What I, I, in Vanuatu, you just teach through the Bible, which is awesome, exposition. But it was at Pizza Hut that I started just saying, well, I got this opportunity. I'm gonna start teaching topical. Why not? Let's try this. And so I was able to, you know, sometimes there was four guys, sometimes there was three guys, sometimes there'd be five or six, but I was able to be like, okay, that's arete. It's okay. I'll begin at the bottom. I'll work hard and I'll see what's gonna happen. That's arete. That's this moral excellence. Begin low, get better, take steps, always moving. And in order to have arete, there's one requirement. You have to be humble. It's going back to 1 Peter 5. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourself. No one can humble you. It's a decision that you make to say, I will be humble. I'll start at the bottom. I'll learn this thing. I'll grow. And you also have to be hungry. I want to get better. I want to do this better. I want excellence. Well, Matt, I'm not humble and I'm not hungry. Here's the great thing about Christianity. You can repent. And repentance, what that does is it, it, it in a way, Gives God permission to change your heart. God, I see this lack in me. I see this pride in me. I, I'm kind of dull right now. I don't really care about anything. God, change me. Give me the hunger I'm supposed to have. Give me the humility I have. Give me a desire for arete where I start seeing excellence in everything that I do. Because all the rest of this is based on this first one. If you don't have this, this desire to grow and be excellent, then guess what? You're not gonna do the next steps. You won't. So that's arete. Arete. Number two, knowledge. Whenever I see knowledge in the Bible, I think because I was born in 1972, and there was this big push in the 80s to, to read books. And so remember that? The more you know. Do you remember that? Okay, if you don't, I have a picture of it. Do you remember that? Like that is seared in my mind. I must've saw that a hundred times as a kid. The more, read books, read books. And it kind of worked with me because I read books. So uh, the more you know, like th this is a basic ingredient of success. And this book that you're holding has a ton of knowledge. It has everything that you and I require for faith and practice. It's contained right here. Well, Matt, why does knowledge ever matter? Here's what knowledge is. Knowledge is representing reality so you can integrate your life with it, to live life as it actually is. If you don't know the way things actually are, you cannot integrate your life with it. So more and more and more, you're supposed to have knowledge. And there's tons of things this book covers but there's number, the number one thing, and I probably am gonna stress this until I go to the grave. Number one is this, it's called theology proper. It's the knowledge of God. I don't think there's anything more important in your understanding when you read the Bible than to understand theology proper. So I will talk to atheists from time to time, and I enjoy it. My first question to them is this. I'll say, tell me about the God you don't believe in. 
Tell me what he's like. And nine times out of 10 at the end of that conversation, I'm like, I don't believe in that God either. He's horrible. I can agree with you. There's just been miscommunication about who God is. And churches do it. I've gone to a lot of churches in my life. And there is a perception of God that comes through preaching. So some churches you go there and it seems like God is a drill sergeant. That he wants you up early. It's about spiritual disciplines. It's about the Bible. It's about memorization. It's about fasting. It's about praying all good things. But that's what God cares about. That what God is after is spiritual crew cuts and pastors that tuck in their shirts. Right? So you're like, oh, okay, well, I'm out. And then you go to other churches and it's like, God's a school principal. All he cares about is attendance. Are you attending? And anything to get people in the door, right? We're giving away free Xboxes if you bring your neighbor. Right? We're giving away free Harley. It's a raffle. It's not gambling, it's for God. It's a raffle, right? It's like, it does not matter. And then the message begins to get changed to make it accommodating. So sometimes it feels like that, or that God's a math teacher. There's all these numbers and stuff in here. If we could just figure out all the numbers in the Bible, we could figure everything out. Like 666, it's your social security number, plus your visa number, plus the Mayan calendar, plus, right? You're like, this is insane. I don't think it's that complicated. Jesus is coming back December 3rd at 4.15 p.m. Really? How? Let me show you. No, please don't. I'm out. <laughs> right? Or God's a grumpy old man. Like you laugh wrong. I'm killing you for that. You go wakeboarding instead of witnessing to your neighbor. Hell for you, you sinner. Right? So these things start to work their way out. God's this genie in the heaven. And if you had these three secret ways, you could rub the God genie right and he would give you your wish. And if your life stinks, it's because you rub God wrong. And there's churches like that. I'm not meaning to mock other churches, although I probably just did. Just saying that's what you believe about God will come out in the preaching of scripture. What you believe personally about God comes out in how you begin to live your life. Like, is God broke? There's people that feel like um, they can't do certain things because God's broke. Like a 10 minute shower, God's like, are you kidding? You could have taken a two minute shower and donated that three cents to the kids in Africa that are hungry. Crazy. I had this buddy, mixed up buddy, and it was like this January, freezing January day, and we were, we were going somewhere. He hops out of his truck. He's all bundled up. And I'm like, bro, what's up? He's like, God, I'm freezing. I said, why? He goes, I'm not using my heater in my truck right now. I said, why not? Because God doesn't want me to use it. I'm like, why? He's preparing me for something. For what? North Dakota, man? That's not God. God doesn't care if you use your heater or not, man. You're insane right? But we get in these crazy trips because what we believe about God begins to affect how we live our life. That's why it's so important what you believe about God. Here was the biggest change in my life. I grew up and I know a lot of people the same way. And there was this statement that God could not have sinners in his presence. That God is too holy and too righteous to have sinful people in his presence. So that's what I believe about God. Guess what I knew about myself? I'm sinful. So guess what that means? I can't be around God. So I ran from God, right? Just like Adam and Eve in the garden. I ran from God. Well, guess what? You know the problem with that? 
the Bible, right? What does God do to the very first two sinners, Adam and Eve? Is he like, I cannot be around you now? No, he comes to them. He calls them. He covers them. He makes a covenant with them saying, there's coming good news. The proto-evangelum, Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman's gonna come and crush the serpent's head. That's what God does. The very first murder, Cain murders Abel. What does God say? I can't be around you. No, he comes and talks to Cain. Cain's like, I think someone's gonna kill me because of this. What does God do? Puts a mark on the first murderer to protect him. Well, that's different. Read Isaiah 6, Isaiah the prophet. God shows up in the temple. Like the very, it says, the threshold, the pillars of the temple shook and quaked. And Isaiah goes, "Uh uh-oh, I'm doomed because I'm a man of unclean lips. And what does God do? Sends an angel who grabs a coal off of the altar and touches Isaiah's lips and cleanses him. How about the New Testament? God in the flesh, Jesus. Was he around sinners? That was the accusation against him, right? Dude, you hang out with tax collectors, drunks, and prostitutes. I tell you, that transformed my life. That when I realized, wait a second, I don't have to run away from God. I can run to God. Are you kidding me? It's like the prodigal son. I can come home. Stinky, broke, I can come home. And he's not gonna cast me off. Oh, the dominoes fell. Like, here's one of my favorite verses. I'm gonna read just a bunch of verses to you. Because I think there is a subtle thing, and I think it's a lie of the enemy that he wants us to believe it's the first lie. Right, the lie to Eve was God's holding out on you. He's not good. And the Bible is, uh-uh, uh-uh, God is good. Listen to this, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. This is Paul's way of saying, pay attention to this one. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Why did Jesus come? To punish sinners, to crush sinners to cast out sinners, to destroy sinners. Huh, he came to save sinners. And Paul says, of whom I am the worst. Jesus came to save you, right? Is God after your joy? Does God want you to be happy? We did a whole series on this. Listen to these verses. I'm just gonna read verses to you. Psalm 4, 7. You have put more joy in my heart than when they have their grain and wine abounds. I know the Baptists are like, that's not wine, it's actually grape juice. Because you know, a lot of joy comes from drinking grape juice. Goodness, that was great grape. I am so happy right now. (laughs) What's he saying? I got more joy than that stuff could ever give me, right? Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of light. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 21, verse 
For you make him more blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. Psalm 36, eight. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the rivers of your delight. John 10, 10. I have come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. 1 Timothy 6, 17. But God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. You have to understand something about God. He is pursuing your joy. He's not an ogre in heaven waiting to destroy you right? It's why church is so important because we have an enemy who's really good at getting us to believe the lie. And we come in on a Wednesday, we come in on a Sunday, why? To get the truth, to understand the knowledge of God, to understand who he is. When I started getting grace, man, it was just, it transformed me. God went from a cosmic killjoy to my Abba Father. That changed my life. Knowledge. What do you believe about God? It matters. But I'll warn you about knowledge. Knowledge by itself can become a weapon that you start cutting off people's ears with, right? There's a group in the Bible called the Pharisees. They had knowledge. They would have memorized the first five books of the Bible, right? Have you read the first five books of the Bible? They memorized them, that's knowledge. That's a level of knowledge that I am like, I am not worthy. But would you want to have dinner with them? No, because they were rude jerks. Jesus says, yeah, you got that, but you've missed out on mercy and justice and kindness. This is not a checklist like, okay, okay, I'm godly and I'm proud of it now. If you read this, it goes down, right? There's more. And it ends, crescendos, if you would, in agape love. Because without love, knowledge means nothing. Be careful of knowledge. When I was a student at Oregon State in the mechanical engineering program, there was a guy, uh, a believer, and um, he, he was a decent guy, knew the Bible inside and out. But man, he could be a jerk about it. He would wear this shirt, and it had a piece of burnt toast on it. And then written above it was, if you don't know Jesus, you're burnt toast. And I'm like, bro, that's not helpful, man. We're trying to share like Jesus with people. That's not helpful. Guess what his nickname became? Yeah, Burnt Toast. Everyone knew him as Burnt Toast. You're like, hey, Burnt Toast is coming over. Oh, great, man. Bummer. You gotta be careful. This is a progression. Knowledge is one of them. It's part of it, no doubt. But we're to grow in other things. We're to grow in self-control. Here's what self-control is. Self-control is the ability to choose the ultimate over the immediate. And it is massive. It's interesting, self-control is both in the list of Galatians 5.22, a fruit of God's spirit, and it's in Peter's list where he says, make every effort to do it, because it's a partnership. And it is massive. So I have a book called Willpower by Dr. Roy 
Bauermeister. And he says this about self-control. There are two qualities that correlate with success. One of them is intelligence and the other is self-control. And so far, researchers haven't figured out what to do about intelligence, but they've rediscovered how to improve self-control. And in the book, he goes on to say, like, people that control themselves are deemed more attractive. They have better health. They live longer lives. They have better, stronger, longer marriages. Just the list just goes on and on less likely to be involved in crime or go to prison or jail. It's one of the greatest influences on your success. More influential than your education, more influential than your parents or your DNA or any of that, it's self-control. Number two, it's important for society, okay? So when you look at Genesis 1, our creation, we are created in the image of God. The animal kingdom is not, right? God creates, creates, creates. Then he stops, pauses, and says, hold on, time out. And talks to his divine counsel, whoever that is. He says, hey, let's make man in our image, that we are created in the image of God. Part of the attributes of God, it's Exodus 34, 6, long-suffering. What is Long-suffering. putting up with people for a long time, being self-controlled, not going off on them like you would like to. That's what long-suffering is, right? It is a attribute, if you would, of self-control. Now, imagine a society that does not have, have self-control. Yeah, someone just said it. You could probably go to Portland and find a very good example of it. <laughs> right? What would happen? What would happen if we acted like animals? So many years ago, uh, my wife called me in for, for my study for lunch. Beautiful, sunny spring day, so front door was open. Our dog, Chloe, who was an outside dog, somehow got inside. My wife didn't know I had just walked in the back door. And I walk in, and I hear one of my girls saying, ooh, yuck, Chloe just licked one of the sandwiches. And then my wife, beautiful, wonderful, incredible wife, said, oh, don't worry about it, that one's dad's. Here's so funny, I was so upset about it, so talking about it that I forgot I started eating it. Right? That's what dogs do, they don't have any self-control. Imagine you go to a restaurant after this service and your waiter acts like an animal. And as he's bringing out your salad and your steak, he's eating the salad and licking your steak. Would you be okay with that? No, right? Like society is built on self-control. That's what it's built on. If you don't have self-control, nothing works, right? But here's the problem. This guy named Dr. Siegelman, University of Pennsylvania, he did a survey of two million people. Think about that for a second. He surveyed two million people. It's one of the biggest surveys ever done. Must have had a bunch of teacher's assistants or something. And he had 24 qualities that he would ask people about. Rank these 24 qualities. One of them was self-control. Guess where self-control ranked in the 24 qualities? Number 24. Everyone said, it's the hardest thing. It's so hard to control myself. 
I have this addiction. I have this personality trait. I have this viewing habits. I have this laziness, whatever it is. Self-control, 24 out of 24, the hardest one. And so what happens is this, because self-control can be so hard, what we do then is we just say, well, I'm out then, I can't do it, forget it. And we just succumb to whatever. But it's a lie. You have self-control. I'll prove it to you. Imagine that you are in a heated discussion with your wife, your husband, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your son, your daughter, right? Heated, it's, it's hot, volume is up, right? And then all of a sudden you get a phone call from a very important person. How do you answer that phone? Are you like, yeah, what do you want, man? Or are you like, hello, yeah, oh yeah, no problem. Oh yeah, no, no, you didn't interrupt me. No, everything, I got done, right? And then you hang down the phone, you're like, okay, back to my problem with you. What was that? Self-control. We all have it, so we choose not to use it, right? So in those books, here's what's funny to me, kind of, they start giving ways that you can improve your self-control. Guess what they are? Meditation, prayer, and community. I'm like, oh my goodness, I think the Bible's been saying we should be involved in those things for a long, 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 long time. I didn't need to talk to two million people to figure that out. I could have just read my Bible. We're supposed to meditate. Meditate is this. Read the Psalms. Read Proverbs. Put on the ESV app. Just listen to God's word. Listen to the redemption, the, the work of God on your behalf. And, and the most important thing is this. Remembering who you are. Your gospel identity. Like both those books, they said this, that there are these bumps in people's self-control when their identity changes. When a young man becomes a father, all of a sudden there can be this bump in self-control, like, oh my goodness, I'm a dad now. This is serious. I gotta stop, I gotta start, right? You get married and become a wife or a husband, all of a sudden there's a bump because your identity has changed. Listen, when you believed in Jesus, your identity changed. You were transferred from the kingdom of darkness where you were a slave to sin to the kingdom of light. Where you become a son, a daughter of King Jesus and your destiny is to rule and reign with him forever. And you can start that right now. Are you kidding? I don't do that stuff. I'm a child of the king. You go back, you meditate on your gospel identity. You pray. What's fascinating in, in reading the book is uh, they're like, we don't know why prayer works, but it does. I love that. I don't know, you know, people that pray, though, they have more self-control. I don't know why. I know why. Because you get connected to the power source of the universe. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ, which strengthens me. You get connected to the power source, right? If you know a situation is, is going to cause trouble, Go in prayed up, right? Moms, when you're putting down your three-year-old and you have an 8.30, someone laughed. <laughs> That's enough said. I don't even have to say anymore. Pray before you put them down, right? You know it's coming. So you pray. And then community. We need people that empathize with us. Yeah, that is tough, right? 
Human condition, yeah, I know, right? But they also encourage you. We can do this. Call me, I'll pray for you. When are you going to that meeting? What's happening? What's happening in your marriage? What's happening with your kids? Let me pray for you, right? It's community. And you'll see your self-control increase. And it has all these incredible benefits. That's what you want, right? So Peter here is tapping into a human desire. All of us wanna grow, right? When you stop growing, you start dying. All of us wants to grow. It doesn't matter what stage you're at, you can grow in these things. And ultimately, the reason why we grow is because we have this destiny. The destiny of every believer is Romans 8, 29, to be conformed to the image of the Son. And the reason why we wanna be conformed to the image of the Son is because he demonstrated how life was to be lived at the greatest level possible. We flourish, we do super well. So this week, work on your virtue. Be humble, be hungry. Work on your knowledge. Grab a podcast of God's word. Put on the ESV app. Meditate on scripture. Right? Pray. If you wanna be plugged in more here, one o'clock, we've got Discover today. Jump down there with us. Get to know what's happening at Edgewater. Be involved. There's every opportunity in the world for you to be connected to people. That's at one o'clock today. And watch your cup overflow. Peter's saying this because he wants the best for us. It's Pastor Peter saying, I want you to thrive in this life. And so every Sunday, we also take communion. And the reason we take communion is because we know, apart from him, we can do nothing. That we have to be connected To the Son. That Jesus in John 6 says, if you don't eat of me, you can have no part in me. And so by eating every Sunday, what we're really saying in essence is become a part of us. Empower us. Live your life through us. And so Jesus, today as we partake, we offer to you our brokenness our pride, our apathy, our lack of self-control. And we pray that you would become our strength, that in our weakness, you would be strong, that your grace would be sufficient for us. And so we eat of your strength today. Let's eat together. And we drink. Because each of us needs to be healed somewhere. And Isaiah the prophet said that by your stripes, we would be healed. So we offer our sickness and we offer our disease to you and we pray that as we drink the elixir of heaven today, that by the power of your spirit, you would heal us. That we would be being conformed to the image of the Son even today. 
So we drink the medicine of eternity. Let's drink together. Amen. So you know this, we offer prayer after every service. It's part of that community for self-control. Maybe there's something that's got you. You don't have to tell us what it is. Just say, I need self-control. Come up, be prayed for. Receive the empathy, receive that, right? The laying on of hands, the confession, all that happens in prayer. If you need prayer for something else, we'd love to pray for you and partner with you in that way. We also offer baptism. I say this all the time, baptism does not save you. What saves you? Jesus, faith in King Jesus as God and Savior, as Peter would say. That's what saves you. Why get baptized? Well, it's your first act of obedience to your king. Because he says, go into all the world and baptize. That's what matters. But when I had that ESV app on, I was going through Acts and Romans. And in Acts 19, Paul runs into these 12 disciples. And he notices something about them. He's like, hey, um, into what were you baptized? We were baptized into John's baptism. And he preached of the one to come. And, and you know, so they, they had some kind of a faith. And he goes, oh, well, you need to be baptized in the name of Jesus. So Paul baptizes them in the name of Jesus. And then it says, the spirit fell on them. They begin to speak in tongues. Like there was a power in that moment. So something can happen. It's the catalyst, if you would, for God to do something in your life. And maybe today's your day where you're saying, yeah, that's me. I want to put on the jersey. I want to identify as part of Team Jesus. And I want to be in the game now. Well, be baptized. If you're doing well, good. It's God's good grace to you. Be thankful. Would you stand for one final song?